So today we're just going to talk about covenant. And I know many of you, you hear the word covenant and you think, yeah, that's biblical, but it's also, it's archaic. It's old. Does it mean anything for me? And I want to say it does. It means a lot. It means almost everything. How you see the covenant, it determines a lot about what you believe. Whether you know that or not, I hope today by the time you leave, you realize a lot of your beliefs are tied to how you see the covenant. It helps you understand sin, transgression, how that relates to salvation. For instance, are people who are living in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin are people who may have prayed a prayer one time uh, 20 years ago and haven't been to church since. Are these people in the new covenant? The new uh, covenant has application for our children. Your understanding of the covenant determines whether you should baptize your child or not. And I mean infant. Also, some of the biggest theological questions that the church wrestles with today uh, stem from our belief of the covenant. Should Christians obey the law? What about the Sabbath? What about the Ten Commandments? All of these questions, as I said, are answered by the way that we see the new covenant and how the old covenant relates to the new covenant. I read an article this week and uh, it was from several well-respected scholars, but the title of the article said, if you don't understand the covenant, you don't understand scripture. That's not an overstatement. And not just the new covenant, the rest of the covenants. The covenants are, as one author said, the progression of the covenants. They are the backbone of scripture. They hold together all the diverse themes of scripture. And our text today is in Jeremiah 31. This is the only place in the entire Old Testament that actually says the words new covenants. But with that said, Jeremiah is not the only place that talks about the new covenant. Many other authors do, Isaiah, Ezekiel, spoken of in the Psalms, often they'll refer to it as an eternal covenant. But Jeremiah is the only one that says the new covenant, and it gives quite a bit of teaching. So we're going to go here this morning. We might go some of those other places this morning. We'll see, not sure yet. But verse 31, behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So before we go too far, I think the first question we ought to ask and understand, what exactly is a covenant? What is a covenant? And it's actually, there's a lot of components to it. I mean, there's entire chapters written just on the definition of a covenant. And I could spend 30 minutes uh, defining covenant. And that's what I'm about to do. I'm just joking. (laughs) Here's a a short sentence you can grasp on. And I would write this down because it's going to help you with our discussion uh, as we go. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises together. I'll say that again. A covenant is a chosen relationship 
in which two parties make binding promises together. That's a quote uh, by Tom Schreiner, if uh, I need to give that reference. But he says that it's a chosen relationship, which that helps us in two ways. One, it teaches us that this is something that we decide to enter into and willingly enter into. And two, it's that we are entering into a relationship with the other party in the covenant, right? So we are deciding to enter into a relationship with another party. It also says that there's binding promises. So in order for there to be a relationship, there are requirements that need to be met if that relationship is going to be fruitful. Think about for a second, God making a covenant with Israel. At Sinai, both God and both Israel made binding promises together, right? Israel promised that it was going to follow and obey God's laws and God promised that he would bless them if they did. He also promised he would curse them if they didn't, which we'll get to that. But these promises, these laws, these rules within their covenant is to serve to have a fruitful relationship with one another, right? Because God is holy if Israel is sinning and transgressing. He can't have a meaningful relationship with Israel. What's a good example that we have today of a covenant? The closest thing we come to, and this is what often people use because it's probably one of the only things we could say, uh, but it's marriage. Marriage. In marriage, both the husband and wife, they have expectations. We make vows. We make promises to each other. And it's similar with God. And we do that to have a relationship with each other, right? And it's similar with God. God enters into a covenant with humans to have an intimate and personal relationship with them. Now, a covenant, I've heard this before, a covenant is not a contract. It's not a contract. Uh, in a contract, we do it for the purpose of business. It's not for the purpose of a relationship. Someone has some kind of service they're wanting to offer us and we sign a contract so that, or, and agree to pay something for that service. That's it, it's about business. I've had Sprint for the longest time and because I'm constantly getting phone calls dropped at my house, probably some of you probably hate me because of it, but I get phone calls dropped at my house. I had to, I switched recently to Verizon and the guy that was helping, yeah, Go Verizon, yeah. The guy that was helping me out, his name was Brad. And Brad, he was really selling up Verizon. He was telling me how great it is, how great the network is and all this. And the reason he was doing it though is that he just wanted the business, right? He just wanted me to sign the contract. He didn't want to have a relationship with me. At least I think. <laughs> but think about a car salesman. They want you to sign a contract, they want you to get a car so that they can get commission. It's about business. A covenant is not like that. A covenant isn't a contract, it's a chosen relationship 
where we come together uh, with another party and make binding promises to one another. And our text says in verse 31 and 32, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Think about that. A new covenant. Why do we need a new covenant? What's wrong with the old covenant? This part has several pieces, but before I answer the question, which I think is on your handout, about why do we need a new covenant, we have to answer another question first, and then we'll, so we'll answer this, this other question, which is uh, what is God's goal in making these covenants? And then we'll come back around and answer your question number two on your handout. But first we have to answer what is God's goal in making covenants? Why does God make covenants with humans? Let's use God's covenant with Abraham to, to sort of understand that. The covenant with Abraham is sort of an overarching covenant that covers the rest of scripture. And uh, all of the covenant afterwards, uh, the covenants that come after Abraham's covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, are all related to the Abrahamic covenant. As a matter of fact, they're all carrying out God's promises that he made to Abraham. Mosaic covenants helping answer that promise, Davidic and new covenant, right? They're an God's answering his promises to Abraham by getting more specific with these covenants. So why does God call Abraham and enter a relationship with him in a covenant? Well, he gives several promises, but the biggest promise that God gives Abraham is that he's going to have a family. God's going to have a family. Abraham's going to have a family. He tells Abraham, through you and your descendants, the entire earth will be blessed. So God is making covenants so that he can repair what has happened at the fall and he can have a restored relationship with you and me, right? It's not just some old thing that's happening in the past. What happened with Abraham is affecting you this morning. And his plan as I said, it, it starts with a relationship with Abraham, but then it goes to Israel, then through David, and then the plan goes through Jesus. In Revelation, John writes that he sees people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne. That is God's goal for making a covenant with Abraham. Because he wants people from all over the world, he wants you and me gathered around that throne in eternity. That's the goal of a covenant. That's God's vision. That's why he makes a covenant. I'm going to keep using marriage as an illustration throughout. Um, I don't agree with this, but many people think that the point of marriage is to have kids. And I don't think that's that's true because um, there are many couples that can't have children, and what you're saying at that point is that their marriage is, is purposeless, it's pointless. I don't agree with that. But there are people that believe that the point of marriage is to have children. <clears throat> if you ever watch the, the TV station TLC, you'll see this all the time. There are all, there's people on there, they say they want to they want to marry this guy so that they can have kids. They want to marry him to have kids. That's what it's all about, is having kids for them. 
And though I don't agree with that uh, for our marriage, in a sense, you could say that is somewhat true about God's goal with a, with a covenant. And I, and I would say that, write this down, because this is going to be important. But God makes this covenant with Abraham and the other covenants so that he can have children, a global family. You guys know the song that, that Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. That's the goal. I am one of them. That's the goal. And so are you. You, me, Israel, were the goal of God's covenant. And so if, as I said, they're all related to each other, if the goal is to have a worldwide global family and he goes to Israel next and he's following his plan, what's the purpose of having a covenant with Israel? If he's trying to fulfill his plan of having a family, you, me, Israel, the rest of the nations, what's with Israel? What's going on there? I don't have time to show you today, maybe in a Bible study or afterwards, but just know Israel is sort of God's second step to save us, right? Israel, they were to obey God's covenant. If you go to Deuteronomy 28, they're going to be uh, a blessing. Uh, he's going to bless them. And if they obeyed the covenant, God would bless them and the surrounding nations, the Gentiles, would see Israel's obedience. They would see the blessing that God has given them and then they would be attracted to Yahweh, right? He, they'd be bringing them to the Lord. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. So Israel, God makes a covenant with Israel to sort of get his global family, right? He's entering a covenant with them so that they can attract the nations to him. They should have led the nations to the Lord. But we read in Romans, as Paul said, rather than attract the nations to Yahweh, he said that the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of Israel. The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of Israel. That's the reason we need a new covenant. That's why we need a new covenant. Because Israel broke the old one. Now, there are things within the old covenant that continue in and we're still helpful and a stepping stone, but we need a new covenant because the old one couldn't be fulfilled. Israel's sin, it gets in the way of God having a global family. It gets in the way. It doesn't help. Look at the end, end of verse 32 in our text. It says, My covenant they broke, though I was a husband. My covenant they broke, though I was a husband. Though I was a husband. Now, I remember I've been relating covenant to marriage this whole time. And here it does it itself. But when a man and a woman, they enter into marriage, that's the most physical and intimate relationship that that person is ever going to have with another human being. And that's why adultery is betrayal. Adultery is betrayal. Because you 
are giving yourself in such an intimate and physical way that is only reserved for your spouse. And you have taken that and you have done that with someone else and you have betrayed your spouse. And the act is so hurtful that it could possibly sever the bonds of trust and love. Breaking a covenant with God is similar. Israel was to be faithful like a spouse, though I was their husband, which is why the very first commandment that he gives to them is to have no other gods before me. And that's why idolatry, having another God before God, is often referred to as adultery. Because going and having another God is betraying God. So as our text says, they broke the covenant. They betrayed God. And God says later uh, in Malachi that I gave them a certificate of divorce. Gave them a certificate of divorce. It's the same with us. When we give more of our time and love to, to things other than God, when we have idols, we are betraying God in a very painful and personal way. And so Israel's consequence of breaking God's covenant, as Deuteronomy 28 says, is exile. We're not going to spend a lot of time there, but just know that one of the biggest points in the book of Jeremiah is that Judah is going to Babylon. They're going to Babylon. You guys are leaving. As one author said, one of the main points that you could just, he just repeats the words, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. The reason that they're going to Babylon, which Jeremiah is way later, is because in Deuteronomy 28, if you break my covenant, exile. So Jeremiah is writing uh, that you guys are going to Babylon. Essentially, he's saying, you guys broke the covenant. What happened in Deuteronomy 28 is now becoming a reality. You guys are leaving. In your free time, if you want to see this for yourself, uh, go to uh, Jeremiah 25 if you want to put some of this together. That's a very clear place. So again, uh, we can answer our second question. We need a new covenant. This is to summarize everything. We need a new covenant because Israel's sin, they broke the covenant that gets in the way of God completing his overall goal of having a global worldwide family. And so if sin is a big problem in the old covenants, that would mean that the new covenant he makes has to be different, right? If they broke the old covenant, he shouldn't just give them a covenant that's very similar to the old. It has to be different. That's why it says in verse 32, he says, and this covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that covenant. It says took them out by the hand of Egypt, or uh, by the hand when he led him out of Egypt. He's talking about the Mosaic covenant that he was given at Sinai. And so although this new covenant fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, it's different than the Mosaic covenant. You guys tracking on that? But how is it different? And that's the third question on your handout. How is it different? How is the new covenant different than the Mosaic covenant? 
And there are three ways, spend a little time on this question, but there are three ways that is different, uh, that our text teaches that is different than the Mosaic Covenant. First, look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So in the Mosaic Covenant, he gave them a law they disobeyed. Uh, and so what he's saying is that because of the inability to obey the Mosaic law, God's plan for the new covenant is to change human nature. Change who we are. The heart of a person in scripture is what controls a person. Everything we do, our emotions, all comes from what's in our heart. It's so much so that the heart can actually define who a person is. You guys ever uh, think about someone, you say, you know, he's such an angry person. It's because their heart is full of anger. Listen to this proverb. It says, above all else, guard your heart. For out of it flows everything that you do. Everything we do comes from what's in our heart. And that flows out to what we do and say, right? Think about what Jesus said. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whatever is in your heart is eventually going to come out your mouth, right? So our heart controls what we do and what we say. And if it controls what we do and what we say, then that means when he says right here that he's going to write his law on our hearts, that means that the people in the new covenant, you and me, are going to be lawful people. Paul understood that that was exactly what was happening in his time. Listen to Romans 2.15. He says, The Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature what the law requires. Uh, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. He says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. I don't think Paul here is talking universally about every single Gentile, every person in the world. He's talking about new covenant Gentiles because he's echoing Jeremiah. They have the law written on their hearts. So here's the difference. In the covenant with Israel, God simply just gave a law to Israel, right? Here, obey, but he didn't give them the ability to obey. And that didn't result in God having a worldwide family. So now in the new covenant, God transforms us so that we lovingly obey him. Another way the Old Testament speaks of this is that Ezekiel says that God, he says, I will put my spirit within you 
and cause you to walk in my ways. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. And that directly applies to you because he's talking about people in the new covenant and that means if you are a Christian, you are in the new covenant and that means that God has put his spirit within you. The third person of the Trinity is living inside of you. He has written his law on your hearts. As Paul says that he is, we have been set free from sin in a new exile or a new exodus. So this is you. This is talking about you. I'm not going to, you know, give my testimony, but just uh, quickly, I felt the same exact thing. I, uh, one of the prayers I actually prayed was that, uh, I cannot obey you. I can't do this. It's impossible. And that was one of the things I had prayed. And then literally the next day, just everything gone. And a desire to love and know God, which I never had before. I will put my spirit within you. I will write my law on your heart. We like to focus so much on our sin and that we're sinners and we should not forget that, but we often go too far. We take it to mean that we cannot obey God, but that's not what scripture says. Disobedience is what actually marked the old covenant. But the entire point of the new covenant and in our text is to fix that problem of disobedience. Scripture teaches that everyone, as we said, has been set free from sin, given a new heart in the spirit. And that was, that was just the pattern. The, the old covenant is we break the old covenant, exile, new covenant, we obey, you know, everything's paid for by the blood of Jesus, but we obey and then glory, not exile. So funny when I read um, Christians online, um, or even in person, they argue about two things that are actually both true. Scripture often holds things in tension. You hear one person say, we have free will. And another person says, God chooses uh, salvation. One person says, God will never let me fall away and be lost. Another person says, if you fall away, you won't be saved. One person says, we're saved by grace. Another person says, if you don't repent, you won't be saved. And to all of that, I want to say yes and yes. Scripture loves putting these teachings together that are in tension, that seem in contrast to each other, but it's actually within this tension, the tension coming, within the tension it holds a higher truth. We see a greater reality of the tension that Scripture holds. And we try to put those together. And the tension that we need to hold this morning is we are obedient sinners. We are obedient sinners. Sinners. The second way that the covenant, the new covenant is different than the Mosaic covenant is found at the end of verse 33 and on into verse 34. 
And it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For the, they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Sorry, I missed an important word. For they shall all know me. So the second way that the new covenant differs from the old is that everyone in the new covenant actually knows God. What does that imply? Well, it means that everyone in the old covenants didn't know God, right? Uh, you think about the story of Elijah and uh, he's hiding and he's running away and he's just found and uh, God comes to him and he says, uh, they've broken your altars, you know, they've killed your prophets, they've done all these things and I alone, I alone am left. And then God said, not true, I've kept 7,000 men from bowing their knee, uh, knee to bow. What that means is that the entire nation of Israel was actually in the covenant, but only 7,000 of them actually knew who God was. Right? And he's saying the new covenant's not like that. You're not going to have to say to people in the new covenant, know the Lord because everyone is going to know God. We speak about knowing people in different ways. If I were to ask you, uh, do you know Bill Gates? What about Joanna Gaines? You know Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, or that snake Kevin Durant? I think most of you would say yes, but you'd start listing off, you know, facts about him, right? Uh, Bill Gates, he's really rich. Uh, Joanna Gaines, she's like the farmhouse interior decorator, loves shiplap. If you asked me, if I know Kevin Durant, I'd say he's a snake, a Judas, who betrayed my beloved Thunder when he left uh, our team and went to the rivals, the Western Conference final rivals, who beat us. Yeah, he really, we got beat in the Western Conference finals and he went to their team. Like, who does that? Talking to you, Ron, you know what I'm talking about. These are all just facts, right? It's just information. We don't have a relationship with these people. They're just people we've seen on TV. We've never had a conversation with them. We've never shared our greatest fears. We've never shared, you know, all the mundane things we do on a daily basis. They're just people we see on TV. Well, I did shake Kevin Durant's hand, though, and he stabbed me in the back, but... But I want to ask you this. Do you know God? Do you know God? Or do you just know facts about him? I bet many of us Everyone here could probably say the right things. God is triune. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus died in our place to pay for our sins. You might know all these facts, but do you know him? As I mentioned, that's the point of a covenant is for that relationship. Do you know him? 
Paul said in Romans 8 that if God has adopted us, he has poured his spirit into our hearts and we cry out, Abba, Father. This is so, so deep. Is God your father? Do you seek him in his word? Do you pray to him? Do you cry to him about the sins that you wish you were freed from? Do you go to him and privately and just thank him when it's just you for, for providing in some way? Do you celebrate with him when you see somebody else come to the Lord? Who do you go to when you've had a miscarriage or been diagnosed with a disease or when depression and anxiety just comes on you one day and it just consumes you? Who do you go to? I mean, it's good to go to somebody else and talk to them and, and, and even get help, but do you ever go to God? You go to these other people because you know them. Do you know God? Do you go to him? As I said, the only people that are in the new covenant are those who actually know him. That has you know, other implications. What's the evidence of knowing God? Faith, fruit, uh, fruitful works. And that's why we only allow, uh, we only try to allow those who have the evidence of faith into church membership. Similarly, that's why we only baptize those who have the evidence of faith. Presbyterians, they see uh, a lot of similarities between the old covenant and the new and a continuation of, the, of those two. And so that's why, um, because they, they circumcise their babies in the old covenant, that's why they baptize infants in the new. They're not technically baptizing them because sprinkling is not immersion, but... Um, that's another uh, argument. It's strange to me that they argue for and see this continuity and similarities between the old and the new covenant when our text says clearly this is not like the covenant I made with them when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's not like that one. When I talk about us trying to have genuine believers as only members or baptizing them, I'm not saying that we need to be, or we're trying to be God's gatekeepers or something like that. It's not true. Just scripture couldn't be more clear that he's written the law on his heart of everyone in the new covenant and that everyone in the new covenant knows him. And that's why it's ridiculous to see someone who's living in outright unrepentant sin for a decade and just say he's saved, he's just not, you know, interested in God right now or something. The last way that the old covenant is different than the new covenant 
is that God will forgive the sins of those people in the new covenant. He will forgive our sins. Look at the last sentence of verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You might say that people were forgiven under the old covenant and many were, but we know from the new covenant in Hebrews is that those sacrifices were actually insufficient. It says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Have you ever thought about David's situation when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? And when you're doing your studies, you have to place it in context. David is in the old covenant, right? He commits that sin with Bathsheba. And so what's supposed to happen under the old covenant? Stone. He stoned him to death. David can't go to a priest. He can't go to a temple. The law says he should die. And David, he, he knew this and he was so bothered by it. That's why he says in the Psalm, he says, my sin is ever before me. In other words, I'm always thinking about what I did. It haunts me. What David was doing is that he had to continue to hope in God's mercy and just trust that God was going to do something in the future, maybe through his descendants. And Jesus did. Jesus said in the gospels, he says, all sin and blasphemy that a man utters will be forgiven. All sin and all blasphemy that a man utters will be forgiven. So to sum up everywhere we've been so far, if you're in the new covenant, you have the power to obey God and you need to rejoice in your relationship that this covenant is eternal and it's never going to end and be thankful that God removes away all of our sins from us. We are in a new covenant with better promises than the old. And I'm going to leave in this with a reading again from Hebrews. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, entering into a covenant relationship here uh, with us. Father, we thank you for all the promises you've given us. We thank you for uh, your word being true and that we have experienced uh, what you promised all the way back in the Old Testament. And we are seeing it play out in the new. And we pray, Father, that uh, knowing that you entered this covenant relationship with us, one, so that we could have a relationship with you, but two, so that people all over the globe could have a relationship with you. This is about a worldwide family. I pray that we would first seek you and that we would also seek out others. Father, we pray that we would extend your family. We pray, as you say in Jeremiah, that you would 
uh, we would enlarge in your tent because more people are coming in. We pray, we ask you for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen.